Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dark Destinations. These may be end times, night creature. Why would a few more casualties trouble me? Because their blood will join yours. A radio drama anthology. You are wrong. How you figure? Every merc on Mongo is hunting you down. Not you. Your partner. He said I didn't have a ray gun. Full cast performances set in the haunted corners of the globe. Darkness is coming for you. I... That's the fear that haunts me. Sleep! Dark Destinations by Father Malone at WeirdingWayMedia.com Welcome back, art lovers, to Midnight Viewing, the Night Gallery podcast. I'm Father Malone, and with me here in the gallery are the projection booths, Mike White. I hate spiders. <laughs> and as always, the culture cast's Chris Stashu. I like marmalade wine, though. Who doesn't? And on this episode, we're going to be discussing Night Gallery Season 2, Episode 4, which aired on October 6th, 1971, and was broken into four segments. Those are A Fear of Spiders, Junior, Marmalade Wine, and the Academy. I have to say, this episode brings together so many of our other podcasts, Chris. Yes. Yes. This is amazing. This is like the Rosetta Stone of Chris and Mike podcasts. It's true. From Theodore Flicker to Patrick O'Neill to Jeff Corey. Yeah. It, and Robert Morris, even. it's They're all there, and- folks. Wally Cox and baby. Wally Cox, yeah. Hey, hey, I'm yeah. involved in this gentleman because many, many, many of these people were also involved with Banachek. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Rosetta Stone for all of us, really. It's a weirding way thing, folks. Ooh. Which might make all four of these segments a little bit more palatable. Yes, actually, I no, I had a good time with this one. Anyway, here we go. The story behind this offering 
a word which we've coined just for the occasion. Arachnophobia. It means for our purposes a special distaste for those crawly little beasties with the multi-legged hairy bodies. In other words, a fear of spiders. The title of our first painting in this, The Night Gallery. Fear of Spiders. Now, this was written by Ron Serling, based on a short story by Elizabeth M. Walter, and was directed by John Astin, who took over directing duties three days before filming was to commence uh, because uh, Sammy Fableman was overworked and didn't want to uh, shoot this episode. Um, yet Steven Spielberg was initially the director of this particular episode and uh, bowed out, uh, leading Jack Laird to say, that kid will never work at Universal again. <laughs> and he didn't he and he faded into anonymity and there you go uh, this one stars patrick o'neill kim stanley and tom petty uh i'm gonna mention tom petty right out uh the gate here he's one of my favorite character actors of all time most specifically from the taking of pelham one two three kaz dolowitz that voice ay ay ay. anyway this episode this story concerns an arachnophobe or arachnidphobe Good work coining the phrase, Rod, who has little <laughs> use for humanity until he runs afoul of a particularly inhuman foe. Chris, what'd you think? I liked it better when Creepshow did it, like a decade later. <laughs> They're creeping up on you, the the superior version? Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, well, yeah. What, a, what, a, what a weird and ultimately forgettable way to open this episode, because not only is Patrick O'Neill effectively wasted, but the... The the climax of this story is it's behind a closed door and it, it, it has zero emotional impact on the story. It's not a good segment. And it's this the longest segment in this in this episode, too, which is, you know, great in and of itself. What about you, Mike? I kind of enjoyed it. I like the big fake spider behind the door that we see at one point and just how those spiders keep increasing in size in his sink. And I'm like, are you noticing this, that they're getting bigger and bigger here? The whole relationship between him and the Elizabeth Croft character, I'm just like, not really picking up everything that they're laying down here. So I was like, it's, they describe him as a misanthrope. And I'm just like, okay, he, he seems like an okay guy to me. Very well-spoken, very erudite, but just doesn't like spiders. Okay. And then Tom Petty, I I appreciate especially his music work. I mean, running down a dream notwithstanding. <laughs> I really I loved when he showed up and just how he's just like, What do you want from me? Yeah. <laughs> he's he's so good. I I really uh liked him and just uh I mean, you know, why don't you go to a hotel or something rather than being tortured by spiders? And then also, sorry. Who is he yelling at at the beginning of this episode? Is this his house cleaner or housekeeper that he's yelling at? Because he keeps yelling to somebody that we never see. That's the upstairs neighbor. That's that. That's really. That's the lovelorn woman. Yes, he he. She lives directly above him. So at first he's yelling at her from above to leave him alone, and then when she comes to the door, yeah. Wow. Okay. Was not picking up on that. It really is a Rod Serling episode segment, isn't it? That's what all, that's all you can say. When I was watching it yesterday, I, I saw that his name was on it, and I just went, oh, good, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> and you know what? It's not great. I think I liked it more than you did, but I can't say that I loved this one. What The story that they're telling, I, I appreciate what they're getting at, of, like you, what I mentioned, like a guy who has no use for people and he's so absorbed with his work and he wants to just work and he can't be bothered by a, a lovelorn woman or his 
you know, his uh, his his asshole landlord, or and he can't be bothered by anything. Fine, but I completely sympathize with that. Right, like yeah, but at the same time, like to what end are you telling a story about his rejection of humanity? Because it doesn't go anywhere. And at, and by the end of the story, I guess one could say that he makes the right choice in rejecting humanity because the woman who he confides in throws him into the room with the spider and it kills him. Turns out he was right all along. Right. Now, I liked it much more than you, Chris, and probably probably on par with you, Mike. Like, it's it's an okay episode. I like the actors in it a great deal. Patrick O'Neill um, manages to pull off this thing where they've they've stacked the deck in his, against his character. They they make him he's a he's a food critic and an interior designer. They he, that that apartment they've appointed it's like an apothecary jar mania in there. Did you see the size of the giant salt shaker beside his door? <laughs> it's insanity, right? So even under all of that, he manages to bring a bunch of steel behind all of all of his performance, you know? Like, they go so far as, and this was, I thought, weird, where they made Tom Petty effectively call him a queer. Yeah, you know? I was it, like, Patrick O'Neill's a coded gay character, is he not? Yes, yeah, yeah. definitely. You don't like women because you're too busy or because you're gay. <laughs> which which one is it? Like, make a, make a choice, Rod, because I get what you're laying down here. But uh, why? What is the what's the meaning of that subtext in the story? Then <laughs> Yeah, it, it's completely out of nowhere. And that's what I'm saying. Patrick O'Neill sort of like resists it and gives it a, like a grounding that that they weren't allowing because, you know, he doesn't sort of play into the stereotype that they were just constructing all around him, which I like. And then on top of that, Kim Stanley. I love Kim Stanley. If you've never seen a movie called Sounds on a Wet Afternoon, go watch oh, that movie. Funny. Oh, God. She's great. She's always uh, struck me as like a, a much more reasonable Shelley Winters. <laughs> yeah, plays a little closer to the vest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like she's she wants to go to the moon, but like knows that gravity is a thing like that. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I think she's really great here. And evidently. Uh, John Aston got in trouble with the uh, with the brass because he was al allowing her to improv uh, a lot, and he defended her like all down the line. Like it, it's weird that like even for John Aston, like the writing was on the wall for Rod Serling here, where it's just like, sorry, we're not no, we're not paying attention to your thing. We're making it better if we can. So I liked like their performances in it on a fundamental level. You mentioned it, Mike. This guy who is a he's petrified of spiders looks into his room and there's a great dane sized spider in there <laughs> he closes the door and locks it and then his own the only thing he can think to do at that moment is go talk to the super the super blows him up and now his only option is the lovelorn spinster upstairs who he spurned and like has a grudge against him he's that's it He's a successful writer. Like you said, go to a hotel and return with a pistol or a pickaxe or something. Oh, yeah, How yeah, dare yeah. you inject logic into an otherwise illogical story? It seems <laughs> like it was completely set bound and that even extended to the logic of the episode. Yeah, it's a stage play, but a stage play would have had a, a better looking spider. Look, the spider I actually really like. But I think maybe had the original director of the episode directed this one, it would have been genuinely scary. Like even <laughs> as bad as it was, he would have figured out a way to make it sh to shoot it to creep us out. Because I don't know why they kept cutting to that same horrible shot of the spider either. Like they showed it a lot, a lot. Yeah. Could they have just like zoomed the shot in or something and replay? Anyway, the best know. part of this would have been after she closes the door. You hear Patrick O'Neill get you know uh, again. We're assuming he gets killed by the spider. 
it would have been better if the door then opened and it was just Patrick O'Neill in a spider costume. <laughs> I, I, just a giant Spider-Man, not Spider-Man, but a man spider, man dressed up like a spider, and that's it. Along those lines, Chris, I thought the episode should have ended with him going up and she was the spider. You know what I mean? She like slowly transforms into a spider and like and then gets her revenge. Like that would have been horrifying. Did either of you bother to read the short story by uh, Elizabeth Walter? I did not know. Okay. Uh, very similar. The plot is the same. Obviously, it's fleshed out more because it's uh, prose. In this, he sees the spider briefly and freaks out and doesn't know if he's if he had actually seen it or not. And that's why he goes up to her. And she isn't as persistent. Like, she's just the girl upstairs that he's avoiding because they had a relationship and now he doesn't want to deal with her anymore. So he goes up there like, mm, could you come down and check? And, and they end up just having a night together where she sort of lays out all the horrible ways he treated her. Mm. And she and then he sleeps there and in the morning wakes up and he's like, oh, let's go see if that spider was real or not and goes into the room. She sees the spider, pushes him in, closes the door and locks it. Uh, they had slept together the night before. So now she's going to have his child. He jumps out a window and kills himself rather than be attacked by the spider. So it, it it's much more. Was it even there to begin with? kind of a thing as opposed to he was eaten by a spider at the end of the episode hmm. way more effective i don't know why they changed it uh, actually i do know why they changed it because this is actually a remake of a twilight zone episode written by rod serling called the thing about machines which is the basically the same story except the uh, the thing about machines has a scene in the middle where they're trying to, a little bit of conflict where he injected a uh, a repairman and so the character that, that doesn't exist in the short story the repairman the dialogue between uh, Tom Petty and Patrick O'Neill is virtually identical to the original Twilight Zone. Mm. So, how why is he complaining that he no longer is in control of the show when he's just plagiarizing himself? All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you will come with me on a journey of my laziness on screen right. for all to see. <laughs> it's it it feels it feels so fucking disingenuous at this point with this show. Like Rod Serling, just leave, just go. It's okay. Other people Good. can work on your show. Dig, <laughs> Good day. You get nothing other than <laughs> constantly cashing residual checks for the rest of your lifetime for all the shows you created. But you couldn't just leave well enough alone. It's like at some point, when do you start tarnishing your own legacy? The here. Right. That's my. Yeah. It's yeah. like it, yeah. it was here to stop. It was in the interviews following the show that he sort of tarnished his own legacy because he could have just sort of shrugged and nobody would have noticed. We would have been like, oh, you know, it was the end of his career. Whatever. Yeah, he could have yeah. been like, hey, you know, whatever. The show is what it is now. And okay. I was involved within the first season. There you go. Anything past that I wasn't involved with. Like, that's what I would say. And just let them hang themselves with however much rope they want. Like, I don't need to do it for them. Rod wanted to keep working, so he wanted to like shift all the blame immediately, so he could like get another. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's it's not cool. I do want to point out a couple of things in this episode that I liked. A filigreed typewriter. Yes, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's a line of dialogue that I thought was very odd, which was uh, when he's talking, when they're both talking, and and he says uh, about the size of the spider. He says perhaps it's a mutation. There's a lot of that going around. Is that a thalidomide reference, do you think? I mean, it's right around the time. Anyway. It is around the time. Yeah, I didn't pick up. I mean, I picked up on how odd that line was, but I didn't think of the thalidomide thing at all. But that, well, That's why I was like, what could they possibly talk be talking about in 1970 when there's a lot of mutations going on? Oh, thalidomide. <laughs> that's horrible. I mean, it's also the era of giant monsters attacking, so... 
you know, this whole thing of like ants and spiders and, you know, all we've already had that in the fifties, but the seventies, yeah, the seventies was kind of like a resurgence of the giant monsters are going to get you because it was, uh, uh, radiation in the fifties and now it's environmental revenge in the seventies. Like that movie prophecy that was around this time. Yes, it was. Or that tell you everything. Yeah. And the uh, Night of the Lupins. (laughs) Which was written by one of the writers on this show. I forget who now, but I I know it was written by one of them. Good. It shows. I thought they were referencing Spider-Man. That's what I thought they were referencing. Because, you know, Hmm. that's where I come at this show from. (laughs) Again, Spider-Man would have existed at this time. It's not not like it wouldn't have. He absolutely did exist. I don't know that the, these elder statesmen of the of the old Rod, no Rod Serling <laughs> had, had good give zero shits about anything like that. That's lowbrow entertainment. That's like interviewing Martin Scorsese about Marvel movies today. Pish posh. Not a face. Stop it. Right, Marty. We got questions for you. Primarily, how do you feel about Marvel films? Not any of the movies you worked on, but how do you feel about movies you will never make? Which people just <laughs> keep insisting on doing. I don't understand why. Ask him what he what his thoughts yeah. are on Tim. <laughs> no. No, like, yeah, you've been in this business for over fifty years, have made all of the. But yeah, we want to ask your opinions about these stupid trends. And that our next segment, which uh, doesn't get you're not you didn't hear a uh, an introduction by Rod Serling because he's petty. Uh, this is called Junior, written by Gene R. Kearney and directed by Theodore J. Flicker. Gentlemen, who's Theodore J. Flicker? He's the credited co-creator of Barney Miller, though apparently he wasn't welcome on Danny set. Danny Arnold <laughs> knew what he wanted and he knew how to get it. And he didn't need no Theodore Flicker's uh, input at all, apparently. Right. But he's uh, he's got one hell of a career, or had one hell of a career. I mean, theater, sculpture, TV, you know, uh, film uh, as well. So yeah, he... He was uh, had his hands on a lot of stuff, but yeah, we mostly know him, Chris and I, from watching him every single week. We see his name up on the screen for uh, Barney Miller. Uh, the three of us uh, share a Theodore Flicker moment. Uh, he directed a segment from Twilight Zone '85. Uh, that was Act Break with James Coco when he ended up writing all of Shakespeare's plays. Oh yeah, nice. That's not a Playboy gag. <laughs> Speaking of, this one stars Wally Cox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is just a blackout sketch. Look, I'm just going to lay it out. A guy guy and his wife are sleeping. They hear their kid calling for water. He goes in. She, the wife says, it's your it's your baby. And then he has to go bring the kid water. He goes into the crib. It's Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein sprawled on the thing. And then he Wait pours water on his face. You have left out the best part. Daddy, daddy. The fucking voice right? that they give the baby yes. is the, that is the moment you know something is wrong. <laughs> in, in a big way, as they would say. It's yeah, it's very, it's yes. very weird. And again, I, I knew that, I, you know, when you watch a, a segment like this, that it's going to be, they show you something funny and that's it. And that's exactly what it is. But I wasn't expecting Frankenstein in the crib. I just wasn't. I just wasn't. Well, so was it effective for you? I mean, it was funny and it was about like, a, it was, a, it was about a minute and a half long. So it's automatically yeah. better than Fear of Spiders because it doesn't overstay its welcome. Here's a, here's the que- the question that uh, roused in my mind that I want to pass on to you from watching this episode. Do you guys wear socks to bed? No. No. Nor I, but Wally Cox does, and I thought that was weird. <laughs> Fair. I think I might have when I was a kid, but I haven't for decades. 
Right. At a certain point, you got to let your feet free. Come on now. Uh, the only other thought I had was now that Frankenstein was played by a guy named Bill Svano, um, who was who was a who was a folk singer, the rooftop singers. Um, he created the story for Fatal Beauty, that uh, Whoopi Goldberg movie. Wow. Yeah. Huh. And I, I, this is my prayer that if anything came of this particular segment, I, I hope he spent the rest of the day terrorizing Burbank. <laughs> I mean, the makeup is great for this like thirty. And they give him that same gag know. from Airplane. He has a drinking problem. That's what I thought of when he's like, eh. I was like, oh, that okay, Airplane. He's just a baby. He doesn't know how to. He could have given him a sippy cup. Like that would have been he, a better joke. I guess. Number three in the night gallery. We call it marmalade wine. Look at it, if you will, with gentle and restrained eyes. The way you'd look at a maniac in the woods. Because that's the story it tells. Hold out your glasses and get ready for a very special nightcap. This segment is called Marmalade Wine, written by Gerald Friedman, based on a short story by Joan Aiken, and was also directed by Gerald Friedman, and stars Robert Morse and Rudy Valley. It's an abstract, impressionist, appointed tale of a man lost in the woods and the man who takes him in. What'd you think, Mike? I love the way that this was shot. That opening with Robert Morse going through that very, let's say, impressionist or sorry, expressionistic setting and the fake trees and him slipping and sliding and everything. I really like the way that this was shot. The story itself, maybe not so much. Um, it was nice having this little, what was it, Sweet Smell of Success? Uh, or, is that the movie that Morrison... How to Succeed in Business. Thank you, thank you. How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. So having both Morse and Rudy Valley in here. And man, I mostly know Rudy Valley through his singing, not his acting. What a strange guy. <laughs> like, like... Even stranger than Robert Morris, who is was always just amazing. And I know that we saw him in uh, some Twilight Zone 85 as well. Uh, Played Cupid. Yeah. Ye gods. So, ye gods, yeah. Um, I mean, I saw the joke coming a mile away as far as the twist of the episode. But I was just, what the hell is going on here? This whole, like, oh, by the way, I happen to be able to predict things. I'm like... Where did this come from? <laughs> this is bizarre. And just the the way that their dialogue goes, I think I really liked this, even though I was still pretty perplexed by the end of it. How about you, Chris? Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I was watching it yesterday um, with a friend of mine, and her and I were sitting there watching it, and I didn't know what the twist was. And when he there's there's a scene before the twist, and he's standing there talking to him. He's like, oh, you know, you, you passed out. You were drunk. You know, I, you're here. Give me some more predictions. I was like, they could have... Cause cut his feet off. Right. That that's what happened here. And, and my friend was like, she was like, no, 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 that's, that's not it. And then at the end, he's like, I cut your feet off. I was like, of course that's what it was. There's like nothing else. It could have been with something like this, the way that they just, the, I guess it's the, in my mind, the reason it was easy to tell what the twist was, was the way the camera was positioned there in that scene. Just the, just the shot of him standing at the foot of the bed, touching the foot of the bed a lot. Rudy Valley. I don't know. It, it works in almost in spite of itself. They decide to do something very different from what they've done in the show up until this point. Very stylistically different. I think it works. I don't know if it would work again if they kind of do this weird minimalist thing that they're going for, abstract minimalism. But 
I like this. I think it also really works because it's like obviously clearly a stage play. <laughs> it's just it's a stage play. Like and, and the dialogue is well written. It works rather well, but it doesn't overstay its welcome, which I think is the best thing about any of these kind of there's like blackout sketches, short sketches, and then everything else. These short sketches tend to work when they don't overstay their welcome and they don't go too high concept. Uh, yeah, I mean, this isn't full length. You know, this is actually pretty mm-hmm. brief as an episode. But uh, I, I'm going to echo both of you. It is beautifully shot. This sort of monochrome, abstract, like flats they have, which you know ordinarily you would just see in like a theater. Um, I, you don't see it that often uh, shot for film, but when it is, it's always striking. And that's uh, no. If, if I, I think if that had not been the case, had they shot it like traditionally and it looks set bound in any way, shape, or form, I would not like this episode at all. But uh, I think this actually elevates it all because I had the same questions you did, Mike, which was, uh, this is is what I wrote down as my note. I love the set, love the performers. Why the fuck is he lying about it being a psychic? What is he doing there to begin with? What is happening here? So then I read the short story. So please fill us in. Uh, Joe Nakin's short story concerns uh, uh, this guy named Blacker who... She front loads in. She, it, it's, it's a big part of the opening of the story that all of his friends know him as the liar. And that's been his thing. And it's, he's trying to work against it. But like he always needs to like one up someone in a conversation or like he works for a like a, a, a like a flea bitten kind of uh, like bottom of the barrel newspaper, like a like a tabloid. And everyone around him is is better. And he's off running down this stupid story and gets lost in the woods and finds this guy and, and uh, runs into the uh, the doctor. And as they're getting drunker, like he just becomes he he starts to feel like smaller and smaller and smaller in the face of this guy who is, a, 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 you know, at one point thought to be a genius surgeon. And so he just starts like spilling this thing like, oh, yeah, well, I, you know, I used to be psychic when I was a kid. I had moments and whatever. And then it leads to this. Um, we don't get any of that no. here. Which we just get a guy. Which is why this. Which is why this wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been shot so well. Exactly. If this was the script that they were using, then this is the the only way to save it is to is to do this thing with the with, with the way that they had shot it, um, because none of it makes any sense. Now, having said that, I really liked it. I really liked it. Like you know, all of those little problems can be papered over if you have absolutely charismatic leads, which we do here, and the the filmmaking is confident and and has an actual vision. And the other thing I want to say is. As horrific as the situation ends up for uh, for Robert Morris, I have no doubt in my mind that he could easily overcome Rudy Bell. <laughs> like easily. Well, but that's that's the thing <laughs> so... about this versus the short story. In this, he's a successful photographer. So why does he have to lie? Right. I, I just if he is a successful photographer, he doesn't even know how to work right, the camera. Right. I don't know who he is or what is, he is. It, the doctor was familiar with his photo- photography. He says as much, doesn't he? Or am I am I literally thinking of something else? No, he just says like, "Oh, how wonderful for you! You're, that must feel fantastic, uh, uh, being able to shoot a picture." Oh. He doesn't say like, "I know who you are." It's it's all one sided there. By the way, in prose, you can get away with a character sort of early on going, "God, what was the other thing I know about this right. guy?" And then later later on going, "Oh my God, I just remembered." You can't have a character asking himself out loud over and over, where is it I know this guy from? Like, he, like, laid out the guy's entire biography to him, and he's like, but you didn't follow up? You didn't, you just stopped caring after learning everything else about him? Right. He doesn't know the one thing he needs to know, okay? The one singular piece of information he needs to know, he he doesn't remember it until 
he's halfway to being tusked <laughs> by the guy. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's still fun. It's still good. Like you know, but but there there are problems. Uh, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is um the the painting at the beginning of this one. Uh, Tom Wright, I just want to mention him. He does all the paintings. Um, it's a really simple still life. It's just it's effectively a bottle of wine, the marmalade wine, and like uh, some fruit and such. Uh, but apparently his uh, his motivation for just making it a uh, a still life was because that's how the oh. character ends up, which I think is really cool. <laughs> that's fair. I, I again, I think this is a good short segment. It works in spite of the kind of mm-hmm. hinky well, writing. Gerald Freeman. I mean, we've seen him do at least two things before, if memory serves. Because I want to say he did Room oh, yeah. with a View, that really odd one, right? Where it's the, yeah, the guy oh, yeah. looking down, the whole cuckolding thing. He did the flip side of Satan one <laughs> from the last uh, time that we spoke. He's going to do at least one or two more uh, coming up here. Um, but this was pretty early in his filmography. This was like, uh, he had just done a couple episodes of TV TV before this. But he's going to go on to do A Cold Night's Death, which is a really fascinating TV movie and kind of predates a lot of stuff uh, from The Thing. Um, I remember watching that when I was doing an episode on The Thing, just to kind of see what this is. And then Chrissy ends up doing a couple uh, X-Files later, very late yeah. in his career. It's it, there Again, this episode, it's weird. This episode has a lot of, and we're going to even talk about it with the next segment. It has a lot of ties back to stuff that we have like spent lots of time talking about or referencing on things that we've talked about. A small item for the pedagogues amongst you. A little something to be found in the drawer alongside the old school ties. A picture, if you will, a very special school where the students don't matriculate, but rather are marooned. Where the scholars are not enrolled, but rather sentenced. The painting is called The Academy. Uh, the, the final segment of this episode is called The Academy. This one was written by Ron Serling, based on a short story by David Ely, who is the author of Seconds, which was adapted into a film featuring Jeff Corey uh, and directed by Jeff Corey. Now, guys, uh, this the second season of the of Night, of, uh, Night Gallery, I've been trying to um, uh, spotlight a few people who were sort of uh, behind the scenes or in front of the scenes. In this case, it's actually Jeff Corey I want to talk about. So Jeff Corey, he was a stage actor, television actor, film actor in the 1930s. The war comes. Uh, he enlists in, a, in the Navy uh, where he where he's stationed on the Yorktown and he's a uh, motion picture combat photographer. He wins a citation from the Navy for, quote, his sequence of a kamikaze attempt on the carrier Yorktown done in the face of grave danger is one of the great picture sequences of the war in the Pacific and reflects the highest credit upon Corey and the U.S. Navy Photographic Service. I watched the footage. It's bananas. He's standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier that is being strafed and attempting a kamikaze attempting to crash into it. And he does not flinch. And he it's and the shots are beautiful. Wow. Okay, so what a patriot, right? <laughs> I know what's coming. Yeah. House Un-American Activities uh, Committee pulls him up because he had at one time been a, a flirtatious member of the, uh, of the Communist Party. He refuses to name names and is blacklisted for a decade. During that time, however, he starts his own professional actor's workshop is what it ends up being called. Even though he can't appear on screen all of the studios are sending him people to get them trained so they get they can uh, be. So he's still being utilized. But some of his students just randomly here, James Dean, 
uh, Rita Moreno, Peter Fonda, Jane Fonda, Kirk Douglas, Leonard Nimoy, Jack Nicholson, Robert Town, Robin Williams, and not a great actor, but Corey's best friend, Pat Boone, uh, uh, also a member. And uh, and I, I'm, I'm bringing him back because Pat Boone is one of the stars of this episode. Uh, it stars Pat Boone, Leif Erickson, and Larry Linville. And it concerns a father evaluating a military academy for his son's potential enrollment. Pat Boone went to where I went to college. Pat Boone is a, uh, a UNT mm. alumni, apparently, unbeknownst to me. Also a, a massive, uh, well, from the sound of it, not a person I would think either of us, any of us would want to spend any amount of time with. But that's fine because he plays that role in this perfectly. Yeah, he was pretty infamous for a while of taking black people's music and then redoing it as safer white people versions of it. Yeah, uh, and I, I did not know this, but evidently he was associated with milk and white shoes somehow. Like that was some sort of Pat Boone trademark, which is a joke in this. Like uh, Leif Erikson like offers him a glass of milk when he first comes in. Like apparently that was a like a, a nod and a wink. I, I guess all I thought when he offered him the glass of milk was. My God, you're grown men. Put that milk down. <laughs> I thought it was you're both grown men. Split that milk together with two straws. It's it's an interest. It's an interesting segment only because I feel like the twist is pretty obvious from the moment you see anyone other than you. You don't even re, you see like some younger people, but then it's pretty apparent the moment they walk into that first room, all the people there are essentially adults, and it's like okay, like the the if. If it's not apparent what they're kind of telegraphing with the twist, they're going to make it even more obvious the moment they go outside. Leif Erikson, he was the one that actually discovered America, correct? Yes. Okay. This guy. His... The one we saw in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He was the son of Eric the Red, I think. I believe that is true. Okay. All right. Uh, true fact, which I found odd, is that he divorced Francis Farmer the same day he married Margaret Hayes. That is a fact. <laughs> Signed that divorce paperwork and then just turned right around and Under the next. married somebody else. He doesn't even need another pen. He's going to use the same yeah, pen. Exactly. Jeff Corey, Jeff Corey also is in Barney Miller, Mike, by oh, the yeah. way. Yeah. Just recently. Like, literally, I think we just talked about it with, uh, is he playing a ex-con who can't hack it in the real world, That's I think? That's right, yeah. Hey, and Larry Linville yeah. was in The Night Stalker. And then he was in uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and Chopper. That's right. Yeah. Two roles. Yeah, he was that doctor character in one. And yeah. Yep. And a, and a police. Uh, he wasn't a captain. He was like a low-level policeman, if memory yeah. serves. Evidently, the, yeah. uh, the casting director here on Night Gallery, um, who cast Larry Linville, would eventually go on to cast MASH. And that's how he got that. I mean... He was perfect in that role. He was wonderful as Frank. Major Frank Burns. Um, geez, I liked Stanley Waxman most of all in this episode. He was the trigonometry professor when they walk into the trigonometry professor's room and he goes, this is trigonometry. I was like, Jesus, age Christ, it sure is. <laughs> yeah, that was a little odd. I mean, this whole segment <laughs> is just like flirting with oddity. Uh, but I liked it. I really enjoyed this one. Wow. I was just like, oh, okay. Especially when Pat Boone just sells his son out. He's just like, is that a good kid? Yep. Let's put him here at the Academy. Uh, I like that the statue kind of looked like Leif Erikson. Is that on purpose? I yeah. hope so. I hope it means that he's been there I, forever. <laughs> yeah, I love that whole thing where it's just like, 
oh, shouldn't the statue be facing the other way? It's like, oh, oh no, 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 not here. We're not sending yeah. them out. Oh, no, Rod Serling, don't you dare do anything subtle. It has to knock you over the head with a mallet. God damn, Rod Serling, we need some subtlety here, man. Here's the subtlety. Okay, uh, they they mentioned that the uh, Pat Boone's wife died under mysterious circumstances. Right. What was it, a boating accident? Um, now, is the the implication outright is that the son was somehow involved? But did you guys detect that maybe the dad killed her and is now pawning it off on the son and is now getting rid of the son so he didn't have to deal with any of that shit anymore? I kind of thought that way too. The way he acts at the end would lead me to believe so. Mm-hmm. I like how this entire premise could be completely disassembled in the matter of minutes when the only person guarding the gate is it's like a it's like a chain it's like a chain like at like at a like at a like at a fucking amusement park that people just jump over and that's what we're being led to believe has kept all of these indigents that are now perfect members of a military society that's all that's kept them in that that and the inherent yearning for giving up their livelihood and freedom to go and live at a military academy for the rest of their lives. No, they've been broken. Yeah, it's like they know that they, they're they bad people and they're just accepting this, which I found really odd. Like, I is there a moment where we see somebody that's fresh off the boat coming in and just having their spirit broken and being subjected to probably torture and this stuff? No, they ju- we just see all of these very sedate men that have just been there for years and decades. And they're just, yeah, they accept their fate. Drilling, drilling, drilling. And like, you know, discipline, discipline, discipline. And like, now they have a purpose. But what is their purpose? It's worse than their, it's worse than their being kept there. They've now just want to be there. They just want to do this now. It's much more insidious. I think I agree. Sure. It's, it's Okay. It's. It, I don't think the episode works overall, but I like what was going on behind it. Yeah, I, I don't think it works either. I think the the premise is interesting, but just to what end? Like, yeah, okay, this guy gets rid of his son, and like, all right, but the, I I know it's a shorter segment because this entire episode has essentially been shorter segments since A Fear of Spiders, but just a little, just give us a little bit more. Marmalade Wine gave us even a interesting. Look, this is just very, very rote. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just kind of rote. Did you all uh, um, admire the crew in the toll booth uh, window in the final shot of this episode? I don't know if I caught that or not. Oh, boy. So the limo pulls away, and then we follow a group of cadets running past that toll booth in which a uh, at least two crew members, I don't know who they were, but they're leaning against what looks to be a VW microbus. And then the camera pans on past that, and we follow the troops, and I just went, the fuck god (laughs) you're supposed to keep me in the story it's part of rod serling's script he had that note in there break (laughs) break the break the uh break the magic please show the crew we're gonna play a preview of the next episode and we'll be right back to wrap up from this picture one wouldn't necessarily conjure up the story of love but that's precisely what it tells about the emotion as old as man but the object of the emotion, this is not quite as familiar. It's titled Phantom Farmhouse, offering number one in the Night Gallery. For our last offering in the Night Gallery, a painting that brings to life a literary classic from the pen of Conrad Aiken, Fragile, Lovely, Haunted. It's titled Silent Snow, 
secret snow. That's right. On the next midnight viewing, we'll be we'll be taking a look at season two, episode five. That's broken into two segments: the Phantom Farmhouse and Silent Snow, Secret Snow. Until then, where can people find you, Chris Stashu? WeirdingWayMedia.com. That's where this show and well, all the shows we work on. That's where they all are. WeirdingWayMedia.com. How about you, Mike? Same thing. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Thanks. You just stole my whole thunder here, Chris. Gosh. Sorry. All, all of us. All right. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, the gallery is closed or something. That's a sign off. <laughs> 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 <laughs>